Listening to the flip side with Noah Philippiad, connecting the reality of the gospel to the grid of life. You can support the podcast and pick up some sweet flip side swag at www.patreon.com slash Noah Philippiad. What is up, Flip Upon Am I? Welcome to episode 87 of the Flip Side Podcast. I'm laughing because I can hear my Middle daughter listening to Weird Al Yankovic up in our kitchen on uh, the Echo Dot speaker, and I'm wondering if it's getting picked up on my mic <laughs> down here in my office. Uh, train your children up in the way they should go. Uh, let them listen to Weird Al, and uh, they're going to turn out just fine. So, hey, welcome to episode 87. I got a great interview with Dr. Peter Sung today on the church. He calls it the post-church church. And we're going to jump into that here in a moment. First of all, let me say a big thank you to those that are supporting the podcast on Patreon. Uh, Breaking news, news alert. You've heard it here first. I've decided that when we, the Flip Up Out of My Community, when we get to 25 patrons, I will... uh, what I'm going to do is a two-month, a 60-day beard grow out. So we did the 30-day for the... uh, when we got to, I think it was 10 patrons. When we got to 15, we did the horseshoe stash for a week, preached in it. So when we get to 25, we're going two-month beard grow out. Uh, that'll be the longest. I, I'll i be honest with you, I really don't want to do that. I do want to get to 25 patrons. Uh, I don't want to wear carpet on my face for two months. But I will do that for you, Flip Upon Am I. I will do that for you. I will sacrifice uh, for you and for the world, really. I mean, I know that's what the world wants to see is... Uh, a two-month-old beard on my face. So, hey, if you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash Noah Philippiak. And that goes a long way uh, in supporting the show as well as my church, uh, Mosaic Church, where I work part-time. Uh, what else? Let's talk about Angry Brew, which is in my flip upon my mug here. I uh, had some Chris's Blend this morning, Angry Brew right now. Uh, Angry Brew, coffee with a punch. Shout out to our sponsor. We're very thankful, and we would like you to support our sponsor, which in turn supports us. Use promo code FLIP at angrybrew.com or fivelinks.com and get yourself a bag of Angry Brew or Chris's Blend or both. Uh, let's jump in to our interview with Dr. Peter Sung. Let me read you his bio, and uh, let me tell you a little bit about my connection with Peter. So he works for the Evangelical Covenant Church. That's the denomination I'm in that I just planted a church in. Uh, We launched, it's crazy how fast this goes. We launched a year and a half ago. So around two years ago, I started in this uh, cohort. Uh, Laura Taro was in that cohort who I interviewed, trying to find it here on my other monitor, uh, give the episode number of, um, but another church planter in our denomination, that'd be episode 74. If you want to go check that out, we were in the same cohort that Peter led and there was church planters all over the country. There was five of us in that cohort and we learned the nuts and bolts of church planting, uh, from Peter. And then, um, so Peter is the director of church planting for the Pacific Northwest conference of the ECC. And he's the conference coach, uh, for the, Pacific Northwest Conference. He's also the Director of Assessment for Church Planners for the ECC. That's the national denomination uh, that I'm in, the Evangelical Covenant. And so uh, Peter just came out with his book, 
right here. I've got a copy of it. If you're watching on YouTube, the Post Church Church. By the way, our YouTube channel needs some love. Head over to YouTube. Give us some some watches. Uh, my uh, editor extraordinaire, Alan, told me you have to watch for 30 seconds for it to count as a view. So who knew? <laughs> Make sure you do that. Um, so the subtitle, The Shift from Program and Place to People and Practice. And, uh, you know, you might be listening on why would I want to read a book or listen to this interview about church? I'm not a pastor, whatever. I know a ton of people that are frustrated with the church. The church is shrinking like crazy. I know a ton of people that are deconstructing their faith. I've been talking about deconstruction on the five-minute flips recently. You need to go to the audio podcast feed to find those. And the church has a lot of problems. You know, we did an episode here on the rise and fall of Mars Hill, on Hillsong Exposed, uh, that's episode 68, if you want to go back and listen to that. The Willow Creek scandal, uh, I, I also talked about in that interview. And we need to wake up. We need to identify what, what this problem is, uh, what we can do about it. And what Peter's done in his church, I call it in the interview a prophetic uh, book. And by that, I mean he's speaking truth. He's speaking truth to the status quo. Uh, you're probably not going to agree with everything in the interview. You're not going to agree with everything in the book, and that's okay. I think what's really important is that we learn to be critical thinkers. We learn to have discussions on deep levels, and we learn to be really honest about things where they're at and uh, to try to discern the spirit. And so I hope that this conversation helps you do that, uh, particularly if you're struggling with the church. I hope it helps you find a voice among a growing group of voices that are ministry leaders that are saying, hey, we need to do things differently. And to know that you don't have to throw out Jesus. Uh, you don't need to throw out the baby with the bathwater. If you have frustrations with the church, if that's one of the reasons for your deconstruction. In fact, when we go to Jesus, uh, when we go to the, the gospels and the way Jesus taught us uh, to live and what to do with power, uh, we, f- we find that um, we have a good home there. And that's what I always encourage people to do is go back to Jesus and the way of Jesus um, and and not all this baggage that we've added to him. So let me read you uh, Peter's bio, and then we'll jump into the interview. I think you will be challenged. It'll make you think. And uh, this book, also not very long. It's about 100 pages. So yeah, to those of you that don't want to read a long book, pick up a copy of The Post Church Church uh, by Peter Sung, and I hope this interview uh, gets you going to, uh, to want to do that. So I already told you uh, Peter's role within the ECC and the Pacific Northwest Conference. Uh, also, Dr. Peter Sung is an ICF certified, that's International Coaching Federation, uh, PCC level, that's Professional Certified Coach, Executive Coach. So if you're looking for executive coaching, you can find Peter at securebase.cc. That is securebase.cc. Uh Dr. Sung has a doctorate in performance and organizational psychology, teaches family systems theory, and is an ordained minister with a master's in divinity. He's worked for almost three decades in the startup church and organizational leadership world. His highest and best offerings are coaching, conversation-based personal and organizational assessment, and public speaking. His deep drives are learning, connecting, and uh, being active and eating good food. He feels grateful to live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest with his wife, four daughters, and their goofy Doodle, Hobbs. Doodle is a type of dog. I should have asked him about Doodles. I didn't. Maybe next time. Next time you're back on the show, Peter, I'm going to ask you about 
Golden Doodles because I don't like Golden Doodles. So, yeah, what what are you gonna do? You can't you can't win them all. You can't win them all. But this podcast episode is a winner. So jump in. Uh, I call these interviews. They really are conversations. It's a conversation between me and Peter uh, about some really deep stuff. So we invite you into the conversation now. If you want to interact uh, with this stuff, if you want to send in your thoughts on episodes, please become a patron, patreon.com slash Noah Flipiak. And you can do that. I love to interact with you and uh, take your stuff onto the show. Uh, you can form uh, the stuff we talk about on the show, like this one here with Peter Sung. So sit back. Uh, I, I say enjoy, but I, I hope that you are encouraged. I hope you are challenged. I hope that this conversation allows you to think more critically. Here we go. All right. Welcome to the flip side, Peter. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right, man. Well, I'm excited to talk. I, I read your bio already and uh, what you're doing with church planning, how we met overseeing our, our church planning cohort. I don't think I knew, though, until I, I picked up, got a copy of the book here, the, the post-church church. Um, I don't think I knew you planted six churches. That's a lot of churches. That's How did you plant six churches and, and live to tell about it? You have to have two things happen without your control. One is you have to have been an immigrant that moved a lot. And so you're okay. kind of a third culture kid to begin with. And then on top of that, you have to have a specific kind of attachment style. I'm now going into psychology a little bit. Yeah. Allows you to attach and detach and attach and detach uh, without too much damage. So I think I got lucky in that regard. I'm, I'm curious, did you plant those... Um, not that you have to have a, some church, some churches make it, some don't, you know, not, not that you're going to have a perfect batting average or something like that. But did you, did those churches make it after you left and was, was your intention to start them and leave, you know, how, how did that work over, over the, you know, in general with those six? Yeah, not to get too personal right away, but um, I think it's hard to separate out my personal situation from the work that I mm. was involved in. And so I think I had a personal longing for place and for rootage and a place to call home. And so that led me to plant churches. I think in the book I talked about how I was planting churches for myself, really. Yeah. I was yeah. trying to find a home. And I wanted to stay. I always wanted to sort of experience some kind of romanticized version of pastor church love. And that be sufficient to keep me staying beyond my uh, reflex to go do the next thing. Uh, and at some, I think a part of me also knew that at some point, deeper would replace next but uh, the next kept coming up for me. And so I would say consciously, I did not have the plan or the intention to leave, uh, but it happened. And there's always some sort of story behind each one. But if you pull back on the camera a little bit more, I think uh, the pattern is beyond the specifics. And you can see that there is a common theme. And that's, I, I'm not saying that, um, I was called to do that, but I think God used who I was developmentally and used me to do that. But um, you know, it's uh, it was it's fun while it lasted, and I always meant well. 
Yeah, well, I I can relate to some of that as a planter, you know, and I think we're not all the same, but we have similar wirings and some of the healthy reasons we plant and some of the sort of what I, in my own life, you know, subconscious unhealthy reasons, things that I'm not doing consciously. But as I look back, I go, wow, that, you know, there is, there's something there, you know, and, and so certainly that's part of our process. You mentioned in the book, um, it, leading to burnout, you know, and I wanted to ask you about that a little bit because I think that's something I uh, have faced. Uh, you know, I think burnout can look different for different people, but that's a real risk with planters. And you're a planting coach and assessor. You know, you work with a ton of planters um, that are that are facing burnout. And kind of a two part question: talk a little bit about your burnout experience, and then we'll kind of pause there. And then I want to pivot into the book, into the um, the post-church church. Cause I'm wondering kind of part two of the question, you know, how much of the way the, the, the structure of church today, the standardized, um, cookie cutter, here's what a church plant is. Here's what churches might lead to pastoral burnout. Um, so we'll kind of get to that, but let, you know, what was your kind of burnout experience like? Uh, your questions are activating for me. So I'm excited to dive into it. Uh, the first part is that, um, different people have different reasons why they burn out. So I don't want to generalize it for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is more of a testimonial. But for me, burnout was really about my ego orientation. Um, I, I don't think I was aware um, in large part that I was ego oriented and that I was <clears throat> trying to accomplish things uh, from my extremities, from, from my gifts, things from my charisma, from my tricks, rather than from the core of identity and character. And, you know, uh, growing up, you hear that all the time that it's about character, but I don't, I'm not sure a young person in their twenties or in thirties can really appreciate the depth of that truth. There are laws of physics that are immutable. And they're going to come into play and they're going to win eventually Mm. um, and they're going to overtake us. And that's in large part of what I experienced. Uh, I I feel that um, it wasn't without God using the, you know, that kind of unhealthy uh, reservoir from which I was leading and serving. I don't think perfection is possible. I don't think full awareness is possible. I'm always going to look back at the five-year ago version of me and cringe a little at the lack of awareness. But uh, that's that was my story. I think my immigrant um, backstory also played a part, that survival instinct that need to accomplish, that need to um sort of check off more boxes. There's some sort of comparative thing happening also, I'm sure of it now um but nothing nothing really uh unique it's it's one of the set of reasons why people like me burn out and i was Mm -hmm. uh, you know pray to that yeah yeah uh again i can relate you know to a lot of those things as a driven leader a visionary leader you know um and uh and and we often plant churches when we're young and uh and just we can look back and, 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 you know, sort of assess some things and, and learn. I mean, I think it's why it makes you a great coach too, because you're able to help other planters identify those deeper soul level things that, you know, that they may not be, may may not be seeing right away. So um, let's pivot that into then, you know, um, sort of the, the structure of the church today. And there's a lot of places uh, I'd, I'd love to go with, 
see, we'll see what kind of time we have to get there. Uh, your book's full of great stuff and we could talk for, for hours on this stuff. Um, but you, uh, 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 once you describe instead of me describing, I'll let you describe, let's start with the metaphor of the, uh, the super bloom, the, the force fire into the super bloom. If those watching on YouTube can see the cover, um, of the, the flowers here, um, representing the super bloom. Can you talk about the metaphor you use for the book? And then let's jump into um, kind of the structure of the church as it stands today. And some of the things, I guess it's a two-part question, so we can we can break it up, but um, just the, the structures that, uh, that need to go, that need to be a part of the burn, but also we're talking about burn, burnout right now. And um, uh, this, this, you, you called it the, uh, the machinery of the Sunday centric pastor centered model. And, uh, I can relate to that. And, and I think there's some, there's some things there, you know, um, tying back into this, this burnout idea. So I'm being a bad podcast host here. I call myself out. I just asked you like three questions at once. So let's start with the first one, just explain the metaphor. Uh, and then, uh, we'll jump off from there to another question. Yeah. So the metaphor, I like it a lot because it occurs in nature. And if it occurs in nature, it's going to occur in our lives and in the, in the life of the church because we're organic, where the church is a collective of human beings. And so we're going to be subject to the same principles that a forest is. And so I think there's some uh, validity to that parallel. And so I like, I appreciate that. Uh, I like how the uh, cycle of life and then sort of the end of life uh, necessitates uh, making room uh, for the next generation of life that is brimming underneath. And we need help from an extrinsic place for us to be able to do that because the I think the intuitive thing, and maybe this is a fallen world thing, is to try to hold on to that which is not optimal, to try to hold on to to fight with our own strength the um you know the 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 increase of entropy in our lives. And um, I think things dying and things living, it's normal and natural, and it's only a sad and grievous thing if you have an ego orientation, if you want that one tree to survive forever or that one forest to live forever. I don't think God's perspective is limited to one tree. I, I certainly know for, for certain in my own uh, belief system that God cares about that one tree, but his perspective stretches far beyond that one tree. So the uh, cycle of life and death that that one tree goes through does not mean that the life that life itself ends by any means. And so I think the phenomenon of wildfires and um, subsequent uh, phenomenon of the super bloom really gives us uh, an, uh, a way to accept this life cycle and also uh, accept it with a great amount of hope as long as we can sort of die to our own ego. And um, I think that's a, that's a really powerful truth that will um, bear fruit in lots of different arenas of life beyond the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, Let's let's go down the route of the pastoral burnout because we were talking about that. What, what do you think is um, what's wrong with the uh, current church model, or or maybe you know the the one that we're in this transitionary period, um, the one that might is dying away? Um, that model, that Sunday centric, 
pastor-centered model. Um, what is it about that that's unhealthy? We'll just start there. Unhealthy for the pastor, unhealthy for uh, for congregations. So um, I think you know this. I think I mentioned in, in this in the book. Uh, so one of the other hats I wear is that of a psychologist. And I can uh, really uh, explain uh, from that discipline or just from my own anecdotes, uh, my theory that the core sort of drive or engine that causes us to go down the wrong pathway as far as models are concerned and create systems is the um, desire to abdicate or minimize our own personal responsibility. I see that in personal life failures and marriage failures and church failures and government failures and country failures, uh, failures all around the world at every level I could probably understand how the minimizing of personal responsibility is uh, central to explaining uh, what went down, what went wrong. And I think the church is not not uh, immune to that um, sort of uh, way of being. Um, so in that Sunday-centric, pastor-centered model, it really is about uh, conflating our own personal practice of our faith, which requires personal responsibility, um, conflating that with uh, subcontracting out the practice of the faith to professionals. It's easy to sit in on a Sunday sermon, have an emotional experience, and think that because of that emotional experience, I am as mature as that sermon indicated uh, that I might be or that I should be even, you know, just like when we watch a movie and our mirror neurons get, you know, activated and we have this e emotional experience and we think we're virtuous, just like the story, the virtue in the story that moved us to tears or something. And so we keep doing this. And you can see this in the physical structure of a sanctuary where all the chairs are pointing to one person. We're not facing each other. We're not trying to help each other uh, increase our sense of agency in terms of practicing the faith. But it really is about getting confused about who really, what what work is being done by who. And um, I'm just uh, training for a marathon right now. I just came off the mountains on a four-day backpacking trip. And I can tell you, only your work gets you where you need to go. If I don't get my miles in on the road, uh, training for my marathon, I'm not going to be ready. If I don't get the miles under my under my boots on the trail, I'm not going to be where I need to be. Same thing is true of our Christian faith. If we don't do the work ourselves, if we don't practice our own faith, we're not going to be uh, where we need to be or want to be or desire to be. And so uh, I think watching a pastor do something or watching a praise team sing songs, uh, watching the programs happen, that is not our faith. It's really about how engaged we are and how much we own our personal faith. And so I think that's really at the heart of why the model is not working. But because we are sort of idol-making factories, we sort of idealize a person and try to um, think of them more highly than we ought to. And then we begin to equate ourselves with them by association and we stop practicing our own faith and we atrophy and uh, I think that's one of the great revelations of the pandemic was just how undiscipled, disciplined 
untrained, unpracticed we really were in our mm -hmm. faith. Yeah, you're starting to talk about the consumerism of the church, and you mentioned that in the book, um, in and how the pandemic brought that out. We started and uh, talk about that a little bit, you know, because we made the shift from these in-person services into virtual services, and for church staff, the time during the pandemic, I was working at a large church in a in a, a young adult ministry role. Um, I, I kind of praise God that I dodged the bullet of being a senior pastor during that period because I know how traumatic it was for so many. Um, but in general, the the shift in churches was now online services. And um, I'm just reflecting on it myself where, you know, you had this in-person experience that still was consumer based, but there was there was relationships there and then it turned into purely you know enter sort of consumeristic based entertainment based uh you're literally watching a show there's nobody else around um what 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 did the what did the pandemic reveal i guess about us uh you talk about that a bit in the book the revealing nature of it uh, specifically when it comes to consumerism that that really was has been there uh has been there for a long time yeah, um, I kind of feel tempted to start by talking about how corny and cheesy pastors always were during their sermons, but there's something about being together in that space and the mindset, the psyche of the people there and the behavior of a group that caused audiences to laugh at unfunny jokes. <laughs> right. You, know? uh, you can't help it. You just sort of do it. Uh but then uh, when the pandemic came and pastors are recording either by themselves in a room or with a couple of staff members or something sitting far away from them <laughs> in an empty sanctuary, their jokes really weren't funny. And I just remember watching a bunch of these sermons. And because of my work with the conference, I had to watch a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of pastors tried, especially in the beginning, to try to tell jokes, to try to sort of introduce some levity to a serious situation. Yeah. And it just didn't work. Um, but the thing is, it never worked. And so that was a that was a revelation, and that's one specific revelation. But that is uh, emblematic of uh, all the other um, hidden truths, uh, thinly veiled truths that were revealed as a result of the pandemic. And one of those deeper truths is how consumeristic. The United States of America is, and maybe mm -hmm. even the world, but definitely certainly, well, you and I are more of an authority, experientially at the least, with American consumerism. Um, and so this kind of bleeds into uh, one of my, uh, I think, core ideas in the book, which is that unless we are cruciform in the way that we bear fruit and live our lives, it doesn't make us, it doesn't distinguish Christians at all. Yeah. Uh, I'm just an ordinary human being mm. uh, not that we're uh, less than human, but to, to, to really uh, claim that we are different, that we are light, that we are salt. Uh, we have to ask what is different? Well, everything else is easy, but the sacrifice part, the part that looks like the cross, that's really what the apostle Paul cared about. That was the distinguishing factor. And that's what we didn't see when the pandemic happened. Christians didn't become more um, cruciform. They became more consumeristic. They uh, wanted the entertainment. They wanted the convenience. They wanted the um, 
the exchange of services and goods uh, for pay. And mm. that was made very clear during the pandemic. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the consumerism, I've thought of it as um, churches, we want to be evangelistic. And so we, we look at Americans and we say, well, they're consumeristic. So we have to reach them by consumeristic means. So that would be, so people listening, like, what do we mean? We mean, we want, um, we want to be entertaining. We want, we want them to be entertained by our sermons. We want them to be moved by our worship. We want really, really high quality worship. We want them to be, we want them to come in as visitors. We call it hospitality, but we want everything to feel like they're at the shopping mall, you know, or they're at a five-star restaurant where your kids are taken care of here. And you're, you know, we're going to do this for you. We're going to have the, the best coffee and snacks over here. And it, it, it's a, it's a consumer experience. And then you get in a, a, a staff meeting during the week and the pastors are all saying, why are our people so consumeristic? You know, why are today's Christians so consumeristic? <laughs> and uh, I can't ever remember the phrase. Maybe you can help me with it. Maybe not, but I'll butcher it. Just that, that idea that you're going to, um, we're, we're, we're reaching people with consumerism. Like people are going to turn into the thing that we reach them with. I can't think of how to, how, how that phrase goes. Um, but I, man, I felt that way about churches for about the church approach for a long time. And I'm, I think that's where a lot of the burnout comes into, right? Because you go, that was a great sermon. Let's got to do it again next Sunday. You know, that was a great, whatever, like it's, it's, it's like a show, right? You're putting on a show and then you got to have to do it again the next week and the next week and the next week. And that's not discipleship. I mean, you're, you're literally just planning a show. Uh, most of your staff meetings are around planning, you know, that show. So one question I wanted to ask you in your role as, um, you know, you're the director of church planting for the Pacific Northwest Conference in the Evangelical Covenant, which is our denomination that I'm in. Uh, you're the director of assessment for the ECC as well. And as you are discerning these truths, as you're discerning these realities, um, I don't know a better way to say it, but how do you, how do you approach that in that role? So it's not a conflict of interest in the sense of um, there are, there is this tension. There's this tension um, of you. I already quoted it earlier from the book, the, the unseeing, uncaring tyranny of the machine of the Sunday centric pastor centered model. I know different regions are planning differently, you know, in the ECC and those sorts of things, but just in general church planting, you go into it and there's these expectations, like you're going to get your salary from this. You're getting money sent to you as a planter, you know, from the denomination, from other donors. And they want to see a sort of like a return on their investment. They want to see numbers. You got to put, you know, push, uh, pitch back into that. I think that's where a lot of this anxiety rises in planters. Cause we're like, man, we got to grow. We have to, we have to be consumeristic or, or some would call it attractional in order to meet certain metrics. And that feels like that's part of your job as the supervisor of church planting uh, versus sort of unearthing, Hey, this is maybe a, a more healthy way to do church. 
but I don't think it's going to create, I don't think it's going to produce the same metrics as the, as the first model, but correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yeah. I think you're pointing to something obvious. I think there's an irony to somebody like me writing a book, like the book I wrote, making the observations that I did, uh, putting words to, uh, you know, to paper that really are an indictment against uh, the very institution and the methods that I uh, employ working in that institution and for that institution. So uh, I think there's an integrity question. Uh, one example that comes to mind uh, is Jesus. Just He came into a world that was dominated by a certain framework, and that framework was defined by status. And he sort of had to dash that. And uh, he's, he became this sort of atomic bomb uh, in that system. And the cost of doing that is always going to be some sort of death. It's going to be through your personal sacrifice. You're not going to be living uh, to enjoy that. I don't believe that's possible. That's the system will push back against you. It will fight you because you're threatening its life. It's going to take your life. That works in every, any and every story. And so um, to the extent that I try to bring um, an ideal or an idealistic or the fullness of some truth or change, uh, it's going to destroy me in the process. That's just the nature of the physics of the thing. And so I know that. Um, I do try my best to maintain my own, own integrity, um, but I have to confess that there are times when I have to sort of lower my eyes to the details of the work I'm doing. And within the confines of those details, I can maintain my integrity. I can assess for a certain kind of trait, let's say, for church planting. Like uh, I do a test uh, called the locus of control. And that really tests for somebody's sense of agency and self-efficacy. And we know that to be an entrepreneur, you have to have a strong sense of self-efficacy and agency. And the locus of control psychometric evaluation allows me to dive into that without looking at how somebody's locus of control is utilized in the work of church planting, which is embedded in a certain system that demands a certain set of metrics in order to prove the worthiness or the success of that endeavor, which then leads to financial rewards and congratulatory pats on the back from the powers that be. Like, mm -hmm. I know how the game is played. And I kind of want to say, uh, don't hate the game, you know? Uh, if you're going to play it, but I do hate the game and I play the game and I'm a player in it and I help work with other players in it. So the whole thing is kind of like uh, unideal right now. Um, I do believe in the long-term game, the long game, the ultimate game that the Holy Spirit is um, sort of holding us to and so that's my hope that in my generation in my lifetime we're going to see two maybe three paradigm shifts that inches us closer to something more ideal something where there is no rabbi something where there is no uh, priest where there is no program uh, but right now we are bidden to make live within the confines or the the pace of these incremental changes. Um, 
one of the things I had to do in the last 10 years was uh, complete design a study and complete a dissertation uh, for my uh, degree in psychology. And I, my proposal for my dissertation failed five times in a row and the sixth one got finally accepted. And a valuable lesson I learned was I was jumping too many steps ahead um, compared to the body of knowledge that existed uh, in the domain I was trying to research. And so I finally had to get humble enough to commit to a study that would add one tiny thin layer uh, of knowledge to the already existent body of knowledge. It answered a very small question that was just half a step away from the last person that worked on, you know, in that domain. And so I think the church is something like that. Uh, That's why I feel so conflicted and yet still in love with the church. I don't love all that she is and all the ways that she does what she does, but my job is not to jump 10, st- 10 steps ahead, but to, um, I think, have hope, hold out hope, and do the work with humility, and especially towards myself, um, to just add one thin layer, uh, a millimeter forward. And that's okay. That's all that God ex- expects of a generation. And when it's time, and he wants to drop another atomic bomb, he will, and he will catapult us forward uh, maybe hundreds of years, the way Jesus was. Maybe it'll be like another covenant. I mean, there is one covenant through Moses, and then there's another covenant through Jesus, and those are many years apart. Maybe there's maybe there's something else coming. I don't know. Uh, I'm not an eschatologist, uh, but I don't assume at all that my discontent or my idealism or my critical spirit is what the spirit is doing and and when the spirit wants to do it. Uh, having said that, I do have to name and confess and own that there's a lot of hypocrisy uh, in my life. And um, as long as guys like you ask the question and I get to um, sort of let that pressure valve uh, release a little bit, um, I can I can sort of be a hypocrite one more day uh, in humility. That's kind of how I feel about it. No, I don't know if that all makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't, I respect you for using the word hypocrite. You know, I know you're, you're being honorable, um, to your, you know, your integrity. I, I don't think you're being hypocritical though. I, I think your intention, I think your intention with what, uh, what exists now, I, I think this, I think your book is very prophetic and, and I always like to define what I mean by that word it speaks truth to the status quo and it, it, it sees what's happening. It sees truth. And so it's speaking truth. And so we need to listen to the prophetic words among us. Uh, otherwise we're going to be doomed, you know, to the same fate as if you read the old Testament that never worked out well when they didn't listen to, you know, the prophetic words uh, among them. I mean, there's stats you show, at the beginning of the book about how the church, um, the average church attendance is in decline. Um, it's I think at 60 right now, if I am remembering right versus I was kind of shocked at how, uh, again, I don't have the stat in front of me, but it wasn't that long ago, maybe 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, and it was double that the average church attendance was like 120. And so, there's this writing on the wall that people are leaving the church. And I do believe we're in some kind of historical movement in the church that maybe 
I, the way I describe it is maybe 50 years from now or 80 years from now, they'll write about this in the church history books. You know, they'll write about this, this movement. And I talk about that as far as people leaving the church for a number of reasons, some of which we're talking about here today. It's one of the reasons I want to have you on too. I mean, I, I, I want this podcast to be a place for those that are deconstructing those that are skeptical, those that have left the church, you know, to, um, to, to say, I don't have to leave Jesus. You know, I, oh, when, when, when others, when others are speaking of the things I'm seeing too, that's really powerful. I think that's really powerful for people when they hear that and they go, I'm not crazy. Um, and, and so I, I think there's just a lot of good to be had in these conversations. Um, I didn't know where to bring this up, but I wanted to ask you, cause so I'm, I'm thinking of the damage done in the church by this model, this big consumer model and the bigger is better model. And we've, we're seeing the, uh, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm running short on all my, my catchy phrases here, but the, uh, the, um, Willow Creek, Mars Hill, uh, Seattle, um, Hillsong is another one. These, these, uh, these are being exposed, right? These documentaries are being made. These podcasts are being made. Um, the, the check is getting cashed or whatever. Right. And and we're seeing these checks are bouncing. We're seeing there's significant problems in this model of church. And so you're not a, a lone dissenting voice that's saying there's a problem in this model of church. You don't have to be right about all the solution to it. Um, but I think we would be really foolish. Um, we being, you know, Christians um, to not wake up and say, Willow Creek, Mars Hill, Hillsong, they're not exceptions to the rule. They represent the rule. Um, and that's what we're talking about, right? And so um, I was curious, this is sort of just my own curiosity. Are you in Seattle? Did I Do I remember that right? Yeah, so what, what was your, um, did you have a, like a front row seat to the, 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 the uh, rise and fall of Mars Hill? I mean, we all heard the podcast, you live in Seattle and I'm, I'm curious, you had to know lots of friends, right. That were involved in, in that. And so how did that, how did, what, what was your perspective watching Mark Driscoll, watching what, what we heard about in the podcast, you watched it happen firsthand. Can you tell us about that and, and how, if at all, um, has that even played into some of these some of these findings that you have in the book? So, you know, we talk about the Israelites and how short their memory was, right? You think they will learn, and then they turn around and do the same thing again, and God has to sort of put his hand to his face and find some patience again and give them mercy and then teach them the same lesson. And, and that sort of is happening um, with the pandemic that's happening with some of the check cashing, um, check bouncing that you're talking about, you would think uh, a phenomenon like the Mars Hill, downfall of Mars Hill, it's literally gone. Yeah. It's not like it diminished into some lesser glorious thing. It's just disappeared. You would think that would have a bigger impact, uh, but it hasn't. People just sort of uh, shake their heads at it um, feel a few th feelings and then uh, repeat the same sort of rebuild the same model because we are uh, stubborn, stiff-necked people just like the Israelites were. 
we don't learn what we really needed to learn. Same thing with the pandemic. You would think the pandemic taught us not to be consumeristic or not to be pastor centered because it really was devastating when people didn't have access to the pastor because they didn't have access to Sundays, you know, and people had to be scattered and they had an opportunity to learn from that and really figure out how to be people oriented, how to practice essential faith, how to be humble in the way they think about leadership and power but they don't and they all want to come back snap back to what things used mm. to be they all want to sort of return so i would say uh the lessons are less learned than you would think uh i would also uh, sort of i have to remind myself that for every uh for every way that a model fails there were many 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 years and millions of people that experienced the touch of God and the life of God that flow through that model. And so, I mean, that's the um, really upsetting thing about God is his willingness to be merciful. And this was the lesson that Job had to learn. It's like, if you're going to be good to these people, I, I'm going to go kill myself. I'd rather die than watch you be merciful. Hmm. And this is the, this is my frustration with God too. It's like, God, this model sucks. Power is corrosive. Why do you keep giving power back to us? Why do you keep using um, things that are going to fail just around the corner? Don't you know that your name's going to be defamed? That you're going to be dragged through the mud with us? Why do you keep committing yourself to the Gomer that we are? Mm. Um, and yet he does. He's not afraid. He's not embarrassed. And he has great confidence in the long work that he's doing. And so I think there's something really humbling about the fact that I, I feel more righteous than God or more uh, smart than God. It just really shows how foolish is the wisdom of man and uh, how weak the strength of man is. And so um, I have that cycle, like, no, I go through this cycle of thinking and feeling like every day you know maybe a different topic something's different some different detail but honestly like uh the the wisdom and patience and long suffering and the hope that god has um it's humbling it's really mm. just mm. something not something that i can't really relate to mm. i don't know if that, that was kind of an indirect way to respond to your question but something like that yeah yeah, well, and I, I appreciate your answer too, and I think I see it. I see that nationally, the going back to the same model, and I think um, after we listened to that Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, at least for me, you you go, man, what lessons to be learned that you you would think these Christians in Seattle, you know, they would do it differently sort of thing, and so just interesting to hear, you know, your perspective of interacting and seeing seeing the same model lived out again, uh, locally. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, again, attention has to be given to it. I know, I think, um, I know for one particular friend of mine, that podcast was very healing because, and I think your book could be healing in the same way. Um, because he has been so, he said, he's grown up in the church and just said, if this is what Christianity is, I mean, I, I don't want it. I don't want this power hungry, celebrity driven narcissism. And then, and uh, 
we haven't really had time to cover some of the stuff you cover in your book about George Floyd and Donald Trump and and the the division within Christianity, the 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 tragic ways that Christianity has handled this, including COVID, right? And you have so much of the church denying COVID is real and not being willing to wear masks and uh, all this kind of stuff. And he's just like, what what is this Christianity thing, you know? And and I have tried to expose him to. Um, Hey, you're not the only one thinking this way, you know, like, cause when you think you're the only one, you, you're just going to, why not leave it all? If that's what all Christianity is. And I think there's something really healthy. It seems should be counterintuitive to us, but it's not. It's like, if we can just get back to Jesus, if we can get back to his teachings, we can get back to him as a person and see that we are not in alignment with his teachings. We're not in alignment with his teachings on power. We're not in alignment with his teachings on justice. We're not in alignment with his teachings on economics. And if we can repent of that and follow Jesus again, I think there could be a, uh, a, a revolution of Christians, a revolution of Christ followers. This same friend, we just he, he just said that same thing to me. And we've been on this journey together for several years now. And um, he's pushing me, he's pushing me to be more vocal, to say there's so many of us that are leaving our faith over these things. And um, so that's what I hear when I when I hear you talking is it I think it gives hope um, to people like my friend to say, OK, I don't have to leave my faith. OK, um, what I'm seeing is true. There's a truth here. And um this aligns with the teachings of Jesus, right? We are Bible people. And so we can point to that and we can say, let's just go back to that. Let's, let's repent and go back to that. And we got to figure out what that looks like practically in the church, but that's the ultimate heart of what I hear you saying. Yeah. Um, I, if I can say it another way or add to what you're saying, um, you're reminding me that there's another way to kind of think about it. When a existing church that's been in decline dies, I'm not sad. If it lives, I'm not sad. Um, I think nature is going to have its way, just like with the wildfire. And so when death happens, it's because there needs to be space created for the new. The nutrients need to be returned to the earth again. And when the timing is right and when the conditions are right, then uh, as Jurassic Park taught us, life will find a way to uh, exist again. And so uh, there uh, there are people in the midst of the old paradigm still persisting longer than maybe some of us wanted to. Um, there are uh, contenders for a new model that are uh, cropping up, and there have been. Um, but there's such a thing as a threshold. And once that threshold is crossed, where enough of the old model is has lost its strength or dominance, predominance in the culture. And the newer contenders, the newer models, this is part of the model revolution phase of the paradigm uh, change um, phase, uh, phases. And when uh, uh, one of the contenders sort of gets chosen by the masses as the next model, mm -hmm. uh, then that's going to take over. And it's going to be beautiful for a while. It's going to be a paradigm that sufficiently answers the questions we have about how now shall we live? Here is how we shall live. Here is how we shall practice our faith. Here's how we shall be more cruciform in the way we uh, give evidence as Christians. Uh, how we let our light shine instead of trying to shine our light or whatever. 
and uh, that model is going to grow. And then at some point, that model is going to also age out. And as we live deeper into that model, it's going to be insufficient in the way that answers the new questions we have by virtue of the fact that we lived in the model for a while. And so the cycle continues. So uh, I have no doubt that uh, Noah, when you and I are much grayer than we are, and you know, it's not our our sort of game to play. We're not on the field mm. anymore, and others are playing. They're going to um, introduce us to some things that feel really uncomfortable to us, that feel heretical to us, that feel. Uh, like it ought not to be. And we're going to be the ones that are the saboteurs and the resistors of the new mm -hmm. model coming. So, uh, and that can't be avoided, you know, but that's just the way God is, I think, pulling us forward. Mm -hmm. So I'm really thrilled, actually, when a church dies for all the right reasons, I hope. And I'm really thrilled when a church lives for all the right reasons. But even for the wrong reasons, it can still live and God will still find a way to uh, bring new life out of it. And so I've seen that. I've seen that happen on a local level here. I've seen it happen across the country. I've seen it happen at the churches that I used to know when I was a little kid, how they were either able to die and um, and disappear and create a vacuum and re resources be returned to the earth and new things form out of the sort of the nutrients that they gave up or they're forgotten and they're gone. It doesn't matter. Uh, life just keeps moving forward and the spirit of God keeps moving us forward. And so I'm kind of saying something without saying anything, it feels like, but something like that. I hear you. No. And I, I think there's a sense of, of resting in God in that. All right. Like yeah. I, I get this sense we, as pastors, we really, if we're really honest, you put a truth serum in us. We think we're God. I mean, we think God needs us. Maybe not that we're God, but we really think God needs us. He needs this church plant. Uh, and there's something when, when you look at the history of the church, it's easier to, to observe the things you're saying and to say, God, he, you know, he kept, he kept going. Uh, you, you can't find the church of Corinth anymore or the church in Ephesus that Paul wrote to at some yeah. point they died yet. Look at the gospel, look at God. Right. And, and, um, I think even, yeah, anyway, I, so I, I hear that and, and, um, it to me it gives god glory and it helps me rest in god uh that's what i need most as a church planter is to go oh god doesn't need me because it feels like he does it feels like everything is hinging on my church plant like that's the type of pressure we we put on ourselves so you're giving a historical vantage point but you're saying guess what that's happening right now too and i think that makes people uncomfortable but it's true it's been, it's always been happening so of course it's happening uh, right now. So let me, I have one more question for you and then I'll give you a chance to say anything else, you know, that you may want to say to listeners. Um, so the subtitle of your book here is, uh, the shift from program and place to people and practice. And I'm just wondering if you can, you know, kind of cast a vision, but practically helpfully, if pastors are listening and this might be one of those, what's the next one or two steps, maybe not in the next, you know, 50 years, but what does a church of people and practice look like? And what are some things we can start with now? Maybe how does leadership operate within that? Um, and just anything that comes to mind that would be helpful as we go, okay, I want to do this. Um, how do I be a church of people in practice? That's a, that's a really um, apt question. I appreciate that. 
Um, I can start with what you were saying just now. Um, I I want it to be a both and scenario where you have historical perspective as a practitioner, Noah, and I want you to get really attached to the minutia and the local work, the relationships, the particular work that God's doing in the lives of the people you are shepherding. Like I want you to care about that. I want you to feel indispensable, like you matter. Um, and I want you to know that you don't matter at the same time. And so um, I think that's part of the shift that has to happen uh, where we get super attached and get, you know, be unafraid to have our hearts broken over and over again and know uh, that there is something bigger and larger well beyond us that's going to happen with or without us. So um, it's kind of both end thing. Uh, the shift from program and place to people and practice. I think the church right now is oriented or built around programs and around the sense of place. And that's really my critique. It's not that programs shouldn't exist or that places shouldn't exist, but that can't be the defining trait of what it means to be a practitioner of the Christian faith. I have to participate or run these programs, and I have to go to this place in a regular on a regular basis. That can't be what defines us as Christians. What uh, I think is more meaningful is really that we practice our own faith and that we are focused not on the law or the principle or the program or the place, but really on the people. And so start with the human being first. Uh, so I studied this thing called attunement when I was in grad school. And attunement simply means that you're tracking with the inner subjective reality of the person that's in front of you. And that defines your action, that defines your thinking, that defines the the offers that you make to that person. And so if you start with a principle or a program first, you're sort of uh, agnostic to the person in front of you. Their particularities don't matter. It's like, just mm. do this thing. Study the Bible. This is the passage you're reading. And this what you're doing is wrong because this principle says so. Whereas starting with uh, with people first, it just means where are you at? What's your life story? What's going on? How can I be helpful right now? And being less threatened by the nonconformity of the person in front of you, uh, but really tracking with them and being unafraid uh, to meet them where they're at and knowing that acceptance is not agreement necessarily and so fully 100 percent accepting them being relational with them and committing mm -hmm. to them as human beings is made in god's image and then uh, maybe there's a program that fits them mm -hmm. but maybe not and it doesn't matter um and so uh i i listed out the shifts in four different categories if i could just list them here the yeah. first is to be essential that means that we just Christians have taken up the privilege to have too many opinions about too many things. And even if 99% of those opinions are true, uh, I'm asking Christians to forsake them for the sake of really majoring on the majors. And so the first principle is to really know how to die for other people, because this is what it means to be a Christ follower. It means to live in a way that allows you to accept personal loss and the choosing of the other person's, person's interest first 
and above your own. And if we learn how to do this, um, then that's really practicing non-essential faith. They don't have to agree with you. They don't have to look like you. They don't have to sound like you or uh, anything having to do with you. But it's really about how to die for other people. And that's uh, sort of the most essential and when a church can major on that and allow everything else to sort of fall into place, I think we're going to do well. The second thing is to be relational or to be people-oriented first, which I just explained. The third is to be humble. Jesus said, not so among you. Uh, power is going to be intoxicating for us. It's going to give us an addiction to the kind of dopamine that's going to overtake our thinking. It's going to impair our judgment. We're not going to be able to uh, do anything right because nothing that comes after that uh, kind of relationship to power is reliable. And so Jesus said to nip it in the bud and say, not so among you. You got to wash their feet. You got to be their servant. And I think the church has to abdicate uh, most of its privilege and power and the way it practices it in the church and the way we think about leadership and the way we think about control. Um, and I think lastly, we have to um, be open to the supernatural interventions of God, especially because I think like you mentioned earlier, we are in a moment. There's a Kairos moment here uh, where God is wanting to do some intervention work uh, to turn back the clock, to shift the paradigm. And I think we're going to uh, come to know that our God is a living God and that um, he is, uh, it's natural for him to be supernatural. This is his world. And I think he's mm -hmm. going to um, give us uh, the privilege of being on the receiving end of like Job witnessing with our own eyes um, the great intervention, inter interventive works of God. And so uh, the church is going to need that if we're going to shift paradigms. That's what we see historically. There's always been these special seasons of divine intervention, of supernatural intervention when paradigms shifted. And so we're going to see that again, uh, probably in our lifetime, though. That's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. And um, I, I thought of small churches while you were just talking and about being attentive to people. I, I feel like my church is very small. Many of us in small churches, we are, we, the pastor, I don't know about church goers, um, but we, the pastor, we just, we want to be like those big churches, right? We, that really frustrates me about Christendom in the U S we do these conferences and have these magazines and you should be like Mars Hill. You should be like Willow Creek, right? That's what we got for the last 20 years. And maybe you shouldn't be, maybe you shouldn't be like, you know, Hillsong or Mars Hill. Um, and small churches are left to feel uh, inadequate. We're, we are left to feel like we're lesser as a pastor. You're not as talented. You're not as good. Something's wrong with you. When you were talking about the program based, when I worked in a large church, it, it felt that way. Uh, if like when people left or it was like, whatever, there's just numbers. Some other people will take their place uh, in a small church, particularly a church plant. I think, I don't know. I've, I've not been in a lot of other outside of my church plants. When people leave, I feel it. I love those people. I mean, I love them. Um, and, and so it hurts when they leave. It hurts me. Like just, I love them. I don't want to be out of communion with them. Uh, and so therefore the people I have, um, I love, I really love if, if anyone listening goes to my church, I love you. I want to spend that type of time with you. 
And when I was in the larger church setting, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't love people. They were, they were more of like a client relationship. Uh, We need to kind of help them have a good experience and help them with their problems. So I don't know, I guess I'm trying to just riff here with the spirit. I want to give a shout out to small churches and I want to give a shout out to small church plants um, to say, I think we are, um, we are nimble enough to do the things you're saying. I think we can do the things you're saying. Um, and, and, um, it's a beautiful thing. And so I just wanted to, I guess I wanted to end with that. Um, what, let me, let me bounce it over to you, Peter. Just, I like to give guests a chance. If there's anything else you want to say, uh, to listeners, uh, just kind of in conclusion, um, any, any kind of final, uh, thoughts, uh, yeah, go for it. Um, I, I think we have talked about him in the past. You and I Noah. I can't remember, uh, but I'm, I'm sure if I was leading your cohort, I brought up Tim Keller, um, uh, leadership guru, uh, podcaster, Kerry Newhoff out of Canada. He did this tribute to Tim Keller, who is, in my opinion, a phenomenal church planter. Um, he uh, did this tribute by stitching together the three or four interviews that he had with Tim Keller. He turned it into one, one podcast episode. And I had listened to them originally, and then I listened to them again. And I was reminded um, by what Keller said just before he passed. He said that he his sense is that the church, um, the size thing is uh, something that's going to come into play here. And he foresaw a season in the life of the church where there are more smaller churches because they can do the kind of high touch, high contact, eye contact kind of work that large churches just cannot do. You sort of stare out into the lights more than into the eyes of the people uh, in larger churches. But he also said there are still going to be some larger churches because they have resources and they can just do some things that smaller churches cannot do. So I think uh, my research, uh, when I look at the statistics of today's churches, it feels like that, that we're going to have some bigger churches and we're going to have lots of smaller churches where we get to practice uh, more customized theology, more relational, humble, and supernatural kind of way of being the church. So um uh, I appreciate the shout out to smaller churches because that is going to be the sort of the it thing I think. Uh, but also, uh, if you're if you are called to be the pastor of a larger church, I hope um, you do that well, and I hope you don't fall into the same traps that um, you know some of the other large churches did by loving power too much. Uh, what I want to say to end is another killer quote, which is. Um, Before he died, uh, he also said that when he was first planting Redeemer Presbyterian Church, uh, he um, exposited the culture and understood that to plant a church in Manhattan, you had to address the specific idolatry of the moment and the place. And that was really about people wanting to achieve greater status and making an idol of their um, work or achievements. And so he talked about making a particular thing, your ultimate thing. And that being sort of the way to preach the gospel was to preach against that. And then he said, if he had to plant the church today, Uh, When he looks out over the land, um, he would do it differently. And the way he would frame um, the idol of our time today is in identity, 
that mm-hmm. people are making an identity of their sexuality, making an identity of being victims, and making an identity of their politics. So those are the three big identity uh, idols that Tim Keller saw, and he would customize the um, preaching of the gospel in that way. And I think, as I as I think about our cultural moment, I, I agree with that. I appreciate the way he articulates that. And so that's what I would like to say to the leaders and the church planners and pastors out there. If you are trying to be relevant and hit on the questions that people are actually asking and struggling with, uh, I would go the identity route and help people sort of unmask uh, their false gods in that way. Awesome. Well, thanks, Peter, so much for coming on to the flip side. Thank you for your book, The Post Church Church. And uh, I'll be encouraging listeners to check it out. So thanks so much. All right. Welcome back. Like I said earlier, I hope that that interview uh, stimulated you. I hope it got you thinking about things maybe you haven't thought about before, or maybe there are things you've thought a lot about and you've wondered, is anybody else thinking about this stuff? I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of The Post-Church Church, The Shift from Program and Place to People in Practice by Peter Sung. Uh, if you're a, a ministry leader, pick one of these up. Uh, and if you're a person that is struggling in your faith, you're struggling with the church, pick one of these up. And uh, I love books that make me think and that give me ideas and... Um, just good. It's good stuff. And so thank you to Peter for coming on the show. Thank you for listening uh, to our conversation. And we'd love to get you in on the conversation. Patreon.com slash Noah Flipiak. You can join in on the conversational community. And uh, give, a, give a, a listen to our audio feed. You can find five-minute flips on there. We've been talking about destruction. I say we, not destruction, sorry, deconstruction. Uh, I've been talking about deconstruction on there. Uh, that's on the audio feed of the podcast. And so would love for you to find us there. And on YouTube, uh, you can find us at youtube.com slash Noah Filipiak. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time. I will see you on the flip side. The flip side with Noah Philippia is a Beyond Ministries production. Copyright Noah Philippia. www.noahphilippiac.com. Theme music by Kyle Lake at Kalik Music. Used with permission. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. It's time to bring me closer. There's no purgatory because you're in or you're out. When you see them in the clouds, you know it's going down. Raise them, raise them, raise them. They've been sleeping for some ages. Now all God's babies so confused by this hatred. Poor pit preachers shouldn't aim to be A-list. Money probably long, but short is with your days.